0: Hey, sorry, guys. Dude, don't worry. I'm stoked to be talking to you. Bummer we didn't get to meet in person, but I'm glad we're, we're making it happen now.
1: Yeah, dude, I'm hyped.
0: Welcome to season three of the fucking Rad Snowboard Podcast. Okay, perfect. One second, please. Call me in the Hi, this Sean. I'm not here right now.
1: You have reached
0: Mike. Hi, this is Jim. Leave me a message, and I will call you back as soon as I can. Hi, you've reached Jeremy Jones. Yeah, I'm going to call
1: you back in 10. Sorry, dude. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to the show where we talk to interesting snowboarders. It's the Red Snowboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Charlson. This week's show features Jeremy Jones, backcountry Jeremy Jones. And it's a pretty long interview, and we cover a lot of ground. I really love talking to him. It was super fun. And I'm going to just throw to the show. So I just talked to Mark Fawcett for one of these.
0: Oh, I love it, man. I want to send me the link when that comes out.
1: Yeah, I will for sure. That guy's amazing. He basically gave me the lowdown on the academy where you guys both attended. You would have been younger than him, obviously. Yep. How did you come to train there? And maybe before that, what was your first board? Like, where did you first snowboard?
0: Um, Well, my first board was Burton Backhill that was basically saw it at the basement of the general store in still vermont and um was like i need to have that i had seen some pics i think um maybe in thrasher started doing some pics of like a small little picture i think i saw but um So ended up getting that board for Christmas, floundered around in my backyard on it, basically built a little wedge and did every trick I ever dreamed of (laughs) on a skateboard and like the first day out. Um, So loved it, you know, and then they had this program where you could trade in that board and get um, next year's board for more money. So I kept trading up for about um, three or four years. And then the Burton Cruiser came out, and that was the first board that I had seen with edges. We'd actually had high backs prior to that, but we didn't have ratchets. They were kind of like these backpack buckles. And so I traded – my brothers were on a similar program. We had three boards, and then when the Cruiser came out, it was so expensive. I ended up – my brothers weren't there, and I'm like, I traded everything in. (laughs) Um, to get this one cruiser. <laughs> and <laughs> they were awesome. not happy. But that put a dent into their snowboard um, trajectory. Probably slowed them down about 10 years. Um, <laughs> oh, God.
1: Was it the cruiser with the swallowtail or was it the square tail one?
0: Yeah, it was the cruiser with the swallowtail with the metal skegs. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were taking the metal skegs off. Oh, when yeah. the cruiser came, I was still like, kind of, you could not make a turn on hard snow i'd go to the resort after it closed this kind of small bunny hill and we would do like straight runs and no one could turn for a long time i thought when i got the cruiser i was going to turn right away i was super frustrated kind of my low point up until that point and I remember just it was getting dark out, remember it vividly. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm thinking, like, what do I do? Do I trade this back in and get the old board back? This thing doesn't work. And it was bigger and it was heavier to carry. It was a 165. I was like 11 years old and <laughs> uh, I, higher than I'd gone. And I was just totally deflated. I was by myself. And then I dropped in um, kind of higher than where I could. Basically straight run and still hold on because we knew what that spot was. Got up to speed and I don't know what happened, but for some reason I put my weight on my front foot, foot kicked out the back foot, lifted up the edge, made a turn, followed by another turn, another turn, another turn, another turn, link turns all the way to the bottom, and actually broke a buckle, getting my feet out of the board because I was so jacked up to <laughs> no. run back up and do it again.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Once you've got that feeling, I guess the academy is high school aged?
0: Yeah, ninth grade. Yeah. So then after that, um, so i kind of be like, I'd ski in the day, come home, and then build our jump and snowboard in the backyard. Um, and we had these little pal stashes, and we always could ride pow no problem making turns like there was one hill that we loved that was like four turns that went down to a tennis court simple simple like 200 foot hills then i started coming home at like lunch and hiking and spending the whole afternoon and into the evening hiking and making turns on hard snow we our house was like in between a cross-country center and this little corner section of uh, Still, vermont and then it was allowed on the mountain, I was first person, um, just by chance, but like the first morning of the first day, oh. it was allowed to snowboard on, I was there, and you had to get certified, and I think it was Bud Keen was the one who certified me, or Bud and this other guy, Lowell Hart, were two guys that were like the first ever instructors there. And... Then I basically, like, that's when hockey went away. Um, I was really into hockey. Quickly was over hockey and snowboarding first year to last year, no matter what the conditions were. And I think, um, I mean, I always loved sports and always was like, I'm going to be a pro athlete, and as every kid does. If it was hockey season, I played hockey, which hockey was around the clock, but it was like practice before school, practice after school, come home, go to the basement, take shots on my brother and Nat yeah, you know, I mean it's just we would live our sports. But snowboarding was a whole other level of obsession that my parents saw that they were really um surprised at.
1: Well yeah, I think I think Mark Fawcett mentioned that maybe your parents called either the school or called him before you went to the academy and were like he could be a pro hockey player. So if this academy is not gonna make him a pro snowboarder then
0: funny thing, I mean I remember when I first like really started riding. And I actually, I went to my first contest on, at that point I was riding the Sims Switchblade that um, was a phenomenal board. And I showed up to this race and it was back when everyone kind of raced and did half pipe this particular we didn't have a half pipe at this event and rossignall they had a demo truck right there their offices were not it was at sugar bush so like a half hour from their office and I'm like well i didn't know Rosignol made snowboards and the guys like these came in like we this is the first time we have ever demoed them and I'm like can i borrow one for this race because my board was haggard and they're like yeah sure take it and So I went and demoed the board for the day, and I ended up winning the race, and I came back, and the guy's like, how's it going? And I told him I won, and he said, man, maybe we can figure out, you know, so you can keep that board. And he came back and was like, you can keep that board. Um, Wow,
1: was that the VAS plates in that whole, that first year? Yeah,
0: totally, but it was before the VAS plates yeah it was an all black board, but that was the board. It was a prototype of that wow. and it was a phenomenal board. when that thing came out, it was like, Oh my God' and I don't think I lost a race on that board. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was kind of a whole different level of equipment and But anyways, it was funny because I think about it. I have kids now, and I'm like, I don't remember. And the coaches were calling my parents going, what do you mean he's done with hockey? This is like we've invested, you know, since kindergarten into this kid, and you're throwing away this for snowboarding. There's no real such thing as a pro snowboarder at that time. There's no industry, and we didn't have any family meetings or anything. There was no, like, hard decision. It's just like, I'm going snowboarding every day. That's I don't you know what hockey's done sorry wow and yeah it's funny how i just looking back at it now being the parent and how like hyper analyzed we're like you know are you sure you want to give up your soccer or whatever totally Um, so yeah my parents what happened is my dad's roommate lived at sugarloaf where the school was right and his son was into ski racing and we had never been to Sugarloaf, and he had heard about Fawcett coming to that school, and he called my dad and was like, you wouldn't believe it. They got a snowboarder going to this school. Mm-hmm. And I was the same age as my dad's friend's kid, and he's like, I can help get him here for the winter semester. And so at that point, it was this school. It was in an old, um, which Fawcett probably explained, classic. School where it was a old like inn, like everything was done in this inn. We, you know, the dorm rooms were there, the weight room, the classrooms, the cafeteria, all in this small little room that is in the middle of nowhere. The closest like stoplight is was an hour from there, and the closest McDonald's. I drove there with my wife, and she's like, "We have to be lost." There is no way there is a school this here. You know, I mean, you go for hours on these roads. I mean, it's it the middle of nowhere. So my parents dropped me off at a bus station, and I headed up to Maine. Met Fawcett, and yeah, I'm sure he went into it. But they were classic times, because Fawcett and I were like... Can you believe we get to snowboard every day? And just the one story is we remember, and Sugarloaf still the coldest mountain I've ever been to, but we would ride every day, and we'd, on the really cold days, we'd be like, where are everyone hanging? We don't see anyone. We're like, are they in a the lodge or what? And so we would be the only two on the lift. It would be so cold. And we figured out that they used the lift shacks as warming huts. And so the kids were all in the lift shacks, and so they were watching us, but you couldn't like see in the windows, and we never saw anyone move, and they're just like, dude, the snowboarders never get off the hill.
1: (laughs) I don't remember your racing career, and don't take that as an insult, because I didn't take any note of racing ever. You raced really, really well, right?
0: I raced well. Mark mm-hmm. faucet raced really really well like at a level that at that point there was no north americans racing at that level so when i started out competing at 14 he did everything winning the overall title that was kind of like craig's yep. kind of like saw the like laughed open where craig was still doing everything and even hawken was did everything and then it got specialized the racing got gnarly the half riding got gnarly and the europeans just dominated racing. Fawcett was the only North American who consistently was crushing over in Europe. Uh He had to live in Europe, basically. It was like 25 events were in Europe and two were in the U.S. But my race career, I did incredibly well as, as an amateur. Yeah. I turned pro when I was 16. I got third at my first pro event. To enter was 150 bucks. so it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it paid out to, like, 32nd place. Like, 16 to 32, you'd get your 150 bucks back. And uh, it was at Snow Summit, never been to California, and um, got third in the race, did the half-pipe, got crushed in the half pipe i'm like i'm not spending my 150 bucks on that um (laughs) and did well in north america kind of a what you know kind of a top five guy in north america but on the world top i you know i did not do well you know i mean at the best i was maybe like 20th in the world or something nowhere near those guys so i Struggled at the world cup level i went you know i won a couple of you north american races um and it was kind of like just enough money to allow this lifestyle where i got to snowboard every day i rented a closet in tahoe we were all about sleeping in cars and couches and it was who was the, your crew which, at that time adam hostetter yep. mark fawcett JCJ Anderson. Mm -hmm. Um, What was
1: the presentation you did to Congress? How did that come about? And how did you prepare for it? And and what did you wind up saying? And how do you feel about uh, how it went?
0: You know, it's funny, the Congress presentation came about pretty quickly. I spent my whole winter in the Sierra. So really pretty unplugged. Just really kind of lost myself in the mountains which i'd love to do
1: this was an all-time year
0: yeah we had a great year again in a different manner like for me it took all year but finally man we are starting to really break new ground but so anyways, I came out, um, the executive director of Protect Our Winners, like Congress, through the outdoor industry, doing this hearing on the importance of outdoor recreation and the economy, which is something with Protect Our Winners, we're always pounding that say, an unhealthy winter has dire effects on jobs and economy. It came about pretty quick, kind of like a two-week warning, and um, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I wanna deal with this. I was so immersed in the mountains, and just stepped up to it, started writing, you know, got it dialed with some great people at Protect Our Winners.
1: Let's sidetrack it for just a second, and how did
0: Protect Our Winners get to where it is now? Yeah, so Protect Our Winners, again, I love when I'm talking to a Canadian, because um, <laughs> I'm trying to reference everything to Canadian roots, which a lot of myself So, but anyway, particular winters was, I mean, I've been seeing changes in the mountains. It was really bothering me. And like one of the final straws, it was, I was in Prince Rupert and I was on a down day. We're filming with Absinthe and we hiked the local resort. It was grass. I got to be friends with these locals hiked it with them they were like had all this pride on their home resort and then i'm like well what, what's up Why'd it clothes? and he's like we don't get snow at this elevation anymore i'm like man this guy's 30 years old and he lost his ski resort that was kind of like on top of all this other stuff and although i knew nothing about the intricacies of climate change i had been seeing it more and more and more i did know I can start this thing and the mags will get behind it and I can get TGR fired up and I can get other riders and companies. I did know how to rally the industry. I have the connections to the key people. and But I'm like, don't do this. And I tried to talk myself out of it for over a year. I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I just couldn't Hold back. I saw this like roadmap of like how I would do it. And then I just started moving the ball forward. And it took me a year to get it launched because I'd like wouldn't do anything. And then I'd come back or I'd meet a lawyer who was a snowboarder and I'd be like, you got to help me with the application. And then I'd meet a web designer and I'm like, can you build me a website? And that's how it started. Brad,
1: right. who were the early collaborators?
0: I mean, I knew from the get go, I'm like, this can't be a Jeremy Jones foundation and I was super reluctant like when we got ads and mags and stuff I was like it can't be me and I tried to get other companies like the North Face came on pretty early uh, my sponsor Rossignol wrote the first check for it Dope. Patagonia came on. TGR did some fundraising for it, and so really just reached out to the best people, like Auden Schindler at that time. I was like a leader in the snow sports, and still is in my mind with climate change. And was like, "Hey, I got this organization. Can you sit on the board and start bringing in people like that?" You know, I knew that athletes have this important platform, so reaching out to them from the get-go. Fast forward to today, and we work with over 80 athletes in this Riders' Alliance. We have a science alliance with the best scientists, really active board of directors. And we're in um, like five different countries now. So, you know, And the goal always is like together we can protect our winners. And we need more of that together.
1: Brad, okay, so getting back now to you being invited to address Congress. Like after the Inconvenient Truth, I stopped driving my car, the 15-kilometer commute to the shop where I was working. And just started riding my bike. And I thought, okay, I've got kids. We have to do something. What can we do? When I heard the economic standpoint, like, oh, yeah, you can totally sell this to people that are worried about, you know, the bottom line. It, you can easily monetize how bad this is. Go, You know, you mentioned the Prince Rupert Resort. Yeah. Just go through, you know, country by country. What, are we gaining or are we losing resorts? Is snow coming more every year or is it moving up? What are the precipitations like? And as soon as you look at it through dollars and cents, people are going to start paying attention, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's been our, we've noticed that from the get-go, especially like, you know, at Capitol Hill with the elected officials, you know, we've we've never used the polar bear. Um, It's always jobs, steel. That's the language they speak. Then in in a mountain town, I mean, if your mountain's not open for Christmas or, you know, has like one patch of snow, it's not just the ski instructors. I mean, it goes to the families don't have money to have their kid in ballet class. I mean, it goes to everyone, and it actually draws this big ring. And um, one of our first reports we did on that was... um...
1: All right, that was the sound of a call being dropped at also this week's commercial break queue. The Boardroom Snowboard Shop is Vancouver's premier snowboarding shop. They've got a great selection of the best quality items. Go to BoardroomShop.com, enter offer code FNRAD10 to save 10% off any regular priced items, or FNRAD5 saves you 5% off any sale items at BoardroomShop.com. Also go to WiredSnowboards.com, order yourself a handcrafted, amazing snowboard from a really great company run by really great people. I've been riding Wired Snowboards all season and I love them. I can't say enough good about them. It feels good to have a board that not everybody has. So go to wiredsnowboards.com, use offer code FNRAD at checkout to save 10% off a high quality epic board. All right, back to the show.
0: So We did a report um, and we just took New Hampshire as like a sample size. That was really effective. That was cited on the Senate floor to start pushing this economics issue and and so that's something that we've been pushing from the get-go at protect our winner the exciting thing is, is we largely have a lot of the solutions we don't have every little detail worked out but there's some optimism with the fact that where we were five years ago to where we were today from like a technology perspective We've made huge grounds and the exciting thing is, is it is proven to be a serious jobs creator. But this transition is also really difficult. You know, we don't have all those answers how to make this transition from Mm -hmm. this system we've been on for a long time now to this renewable system.
1: Right. But the optimism's there because the solutions are going to make people money.
0: Yeah. The mighty dollar is much more excited right now on renewables than coal. And this last election continues to be a kick in the gut on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But the reality is 200 coal plants closed down because it did not make economic sense. And that is the same before the election and today. And renewables are being adopted at a breakneck pace. Mm -hmm. The sad thing for the U.S. is we could help really accelerate that, and we're doing the opposite. And we're just trying to, like, slow down this inevitable shift that we're on. And Mm -hmm. we're opening up the door for other countries to um, cast us up on on this. And it's sad, but, you know, thankfully the rest of the world is largely making big steps on.
1: It's one of those things for me that I don't know any Americans that aren't like you. You know what I mean? And everyone's, like, kind of embarrassed. Yeah. I guess it's just the circles that I'm lucky enough to know. But, I mean, everywhere I go in the United States, I meet the coolest people. Portland, Oregon, anywhere in California. But not only there. Like, Massachusetts, every everywhere that I've ever been, there's all these cool
0: <laughs> people. You got to look at the map, man. You just yeah. named like every blue state there is. Oh, uh, um, okay. And that's okay. The same yeah. Deal. I mean, it's, always, it's like we're a big country and, and what I've tried to learn is that through reading books and understanding is what these red states who are huge Trump supporters understand what made them. They're mm-hmm. a product of, you know, our country and they, you know, there's a lot of different reasons for it and the answers are not simple and just divisive is the big problem Mm
1: -hmm. the divide between the two sides has been actively getting bigger and bigger and bigger for so long and you must see that in the snowboard industry the spokesperson for you know what some careless people would be like fuck that hippie guy oh yeah
0: I, i definitely deal with a lot of hate but i'm learning how to deal with it you know it's something new i'm you know i'm not someone who gets excited about confrontation and let's hop on the internet and get in fights. So an optimist.
1: Yeah, I was surprised how um, environmentally active Terrier was. He was pretty bitter when he was in Mount Baker. He was like, have all these bins for recycling and everybody's just throwing garbage and everything. It's like, what are you
0: guys doing here? This seems... Yeah, I don't, you know, I can't speak for Hawkins you know he's not afraid to speak his mind which I totally respect and I do think of Jonathan Moore for example especially after this last election and because and I feel like I was snowboarding with Jonathan we were riding quite a bit together and he basically went and moved to the coast off the grid and lives this like simple carbon neutral lifestyle and I have the utmost respect for it And I'm starting to have a lot more envy for it Um, where I've gone this other way where, you know, I'm still hopping on planes and and living this very plugged in life, even though I do try and take big chunks away from it. But I'm kind of in the throes of society or what you want to call it. And I'm like, man, when can I go and get in that cabin and turn all this stuff off?
1: Yeah, man. I think we all feel that. Like there is no moment anymore that we're unplugged. You're out in nature, you're taking pictures, you're Instagramming, you're checking your right. likes. You're like this spot that we're hiking to is going to be the best picture ever. Can't wait to see how many likes it gets. Uh, you, you know, you, it's so much fun. That's the thing about it is it's really nice to be. Uh, yeah,
0: it's it's wonderful. Yeah, so I totally agree. I mean, for me, I do make it a, and I get sucked into it like everyone else, and and a lot of it is fun and what you can do with this phone and your hand is incredible. Mm-hmm. Makes waiting in line like no big deal. But I do make a really Really conscious effort when I go and get into the mountains. I'm not, you know, not be plugged in. I'm in airplane mode and, mm-hmm. and disconnect. And and I'm grateful for that, that I can be like, I'm out. I'm going to camp for a couple of days. And also, thankfully, our mountains just have horrible reception. You can't get online if you want to. You know, I will say, too, I've had, like, because we do, I like to knock phone the phone all the time, but I have been where, like, hey, I got a conference call at 11, and my buddies are going split boarding. I'm like, fuck, I can't go. I got this call. And then it's like, I'll just time the lap and do the call on the skin track. And I try to avoid that, but there's five times a year where I am on a call that can't be moved on a skin track, and it was either stay at home or take a call on the skin track. Incredible. Hate doing it, but what's funny is, um, like all the footboarding and stuff that I'm doing, it is also reinvigorated me on the resort um, mm. because I'll get in these cycles where I'll go two weeks where I don't touch a chairlift or who you knows, you know, sometimes four weeks, what have you. But mm. to go back and get on a chairlift after hiking around for long periods of time and have no backpack and. Mm a small board and enjoy yeah. the benefits of a chairlift. It is totally re me on riding hardback at the mountain. I don't right. really mess around too much with powder days because it's so chaotic. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But that like Tuesday gray bird day when no one's out there and you got the mountain to yourself and a chairlift and a well-tuned board, that's 40 days a year for me for sure.
1: Rad. Well, let's talk about Jones Snowboards. I guess Rosie was your first sponsor, and, and sponsored you all the way through until you started that? Is that true?
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. 19 years with Rosie now.
1: I don't think most people remember how early Rosie got into the game. Because by 92... They were on the wall at the boardroom. That prototype that you rode would have been 90 or 91?
0: was 89. 89. That's when I Yeah, it was actually...
1: Other companies like Solomon just didn't sign on until forever after that.
0: They were, yeah. They were very late.
1: Yeah. Rosie's from their low end to their high end rode so well.
0: Okay. I couldn't agree more, man.
1: Yeah. How did you break away from that and, and start Jones?
0: As I, at that point, I was reporting a ton. Mm-hmm. I was When I made the decision, we had shot the first year deeper, mm-hmm. and I just was not getting the boards that I wanted in the sense of the split board. They, they just were not into it. At that point, Rossignol was going through a kind of a reshuffle hard time. And I started looking at some other companies out there and had some interest, but they all were very clear. We're not making a split board and we're not investing in um, free ride shapes. And at that point, the banana had come out. I've always been around some you know, skiers, they had these directional rocker skis that I was watching them and yeah. like first like the first day they were on them and being like losing their mind. And it made some just like that needs to be my snowboard. And so I just kind of was like I knew at that point and really, to be honest, when I made deeper, i'm like this movie i'm making by myself you know for myself and i Mm -hmm. think it's gonna i had no intentions of it being like this big event and this really big success i thought that this small group of people would love it and great you know and so be it and i'm cool with it and if this means losing a bunch of sponsors because I'm not filming five video parts a year, so be it. I'm 30 years old or something at that time. I think I was 30 at the time, uh-huh. and I'm cool with it. So looking forward, I'm like, well, I don't want to, who knows how long I'll be a sponsored snowboarder. And I had boards I wanted to make. It comes down to like longevity in the sport is if you can move product, And the best way to move product is to have the best boards with the most um, authentic brand story and I was like Fuck, that's I got to do my own thing and once again you know I tried to talk myself out of it and then I figured out to the Nideckers to I'm like if I came up with these guys I know I can make the best boards having their kind of access to their engineers was the final piece where I'm like let's Do this and launched it again, like really low expectation. Like by like lunch on the first day of SIA, I didn't even have boards because I got stuck in customs. Being like, wow, I think I underestimated this.
1: Oh, rad! That's great. Jones happened at this time that was the industry needed something new, but also was like imploding. Totally. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that the company had success right off the bat. That's that's awesome. Has it been a struggle since? Like, are you
0: at a point where... You know, I'd say I've had a crash course in, like, understanding business and that whole side of things. And there's been late delivery issues yeah. and really just kind of learning on the job type stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at the heart of it, it, and it's been a lot of work, but I really set it up knowing that, like, I am not starting a snowboard company not to snowboard. So it right. been very clear. I am in charge of the boards, what they look like, what the shape is, what they're made of. And, and not to say there's definitely I have some amazing people that I work with, but um, that's where, where my head is all in on the product and what the consumer has under their feet and as you can imagine having that opportunity to design product for snowboarding has just been really a dream come true and it doesn't feel like work. I just Tracked down and got rights to this incredible shot of Craig. It's a 32 second line that he writes in Island Lake Lodge that had a profound impact on my life at the time when I saw it. So, little Craig tidbit that is um, worked into this pretty artsy uh, film that's based around this poem that I uh, wrote a while back. And it's called Life of Glide. And Touches on a bunch of different things, really, my path and snowboarding and influences, but present day and the work that I've been doing on specifically this one board that I designed with Chris Christensen, which takes some of the exact curves from surfing that he had learned from Skip Fry, who is one of the first guys to start uh, making them fish. So this whole life cycle of glide is what it's That's in the so works rad. right now.
1: That's amazing.
0: I had a guy from Backcountry magazine interview me a while ago, like kind of when I was doing you know, like 10 years ago, kind of right when deeper was starting. And he um, was like, where do you think the sport would be if Craig didn't pass? And I had never thought of that, but it would have been much further along on the split front at that point. I can tell you at that point when deeper started Burton had just discontinued their splitboard, And, um, and I feel like the loss of Craig and it, really that question was like, wow, you know, it would be a lot different. It's the real answer if Craig was still around. And I feel like Craig was this great um, kind of compass for the sport. And when he passed, the sport just became headless and kind of unglued and lost. And, And like, is it the loss of this Which he was well on his way to be this elder statesman that we only, that would drop his wisdom every once in a while. um, And was just starting to like his, you know, the quotes towards the end of his life were, I mean, I wrote them down when I, before he died as being like, that's incredible. Um, You know, it, it is. So, yeah, I mean, the Craig stuff and, and when I mentioned this whole split board stuff, I mean, Craig was crushing on a split board. What he was trying to do um, and well on his way you know, with his whole guiding thing, I mean, he was walking into these places and with to be a guide on a split board, and they're like, what are you You're in the wrong room, dude? That is not happening. Yeah. And, and no, I don't care who you are, great. You were some snowboard freestyle dude, whatever. I mean, little did they know that Of course. What better guy to just be like, well, I want to learn anyways. Don't give me the certificate. Here's my money. You know, and and like just winning over the hardest people to win over and doing it so rootsy at that point of like, I just want to show people how incredible this feeling of snowboarding is. And I get such a high from that right now that that's where my head's at. So rad. For me, it's, I mean, that's my medicine really you know I mean that's where I yeah I mean every and the thing, I mean I just got back from backpacking with my family and it's just like you know is are we going in are we going in or are we coming out I mean like in the sense of like when I'm in the mountains I everything is so much uh simpler and makes so much more sense to me and I bumble around um out of the mountains a little bit of a fish out of water and um but i feel so grateful that i have like found this thing in my life that is so achievable for me to go out i don't it doesn't it, i mean the conditions don't need to be good there's very low standard for me to go out and whether it's with my snowboard or even just walking in the woods at this point, I'm I'm getting more and more out of my time in the mountains and especially with this climate battle and stuff that I face on a daily basis. It's like the mountains are just so important to, um, give perspective and balance on, uh, on my life. Brad, man.
1: Well, keep fighting the good fight, please of keeping an inspiration for you know not just snowboarders just for everybody it's been really a, a huge honor to talk to you man
0: well i enjoyed it it was really pleasurable to talk to someone who's been snowboarding um, uh, from you know as long as i have and uh that was great love i really it. enjoyed thanks. it thanks
1: yeah thanks it's your your passion really comes out when you talk about snowboarding i love that it's amazing dude Thanks for taking the time, man. You took a lot of time, too.
0: All right.
1: Well, I'm going to run. Cheers, man. Rad shout-outs to Jeremy Jones this week. Thank you for doing that interview. Also, special thanks to John Thompson and Rob Click for giving us five-star reviews on our FNRAD Facebook page. I've got some band stuff for you guys. And to all of our listeners... Follow us on Instagram. Leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. And make sure to come back next week for another episode of the F and Rad Snowboarding Podcast brought to you by BR
0: Productions. You know, I have to say, like, I really appreciate your words on the splitboard stuff and that I threw deeper inspired a lot of people. But I truly do believe you kind of stand on the shoulders of the people before you and guys like Jim Sellers and Tom Bird. And there were some people doing some great stuff on the split front. And literally, to be honest, I think May of this year is the first time that I can look into my home range, which is Jim and Tom's home range, and be like, Finally, dude, I think I went to a spot that you've never been. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, the range is just littered with first descent by those guys, especially Jim Zellers, that are huge efforts, and he did through the 90s and 2000s. And I'm, like, working so hard just to, like, get to where he was, like, 15 years ago and through dialing in my kit to where I can go out for longer periods of time. I'm finally getting back to a layer where Jim's like, "Well, yeah, I, I never made it that far back," and it's like, <laughs> "God, it took me so long." That's rad. <laughs>